I don't know about you, but as a family, we often sit down and we talk about world events, things that are going on, the dinner table where there's a lot of discussion around, um, you know, uh, things that are things that are just occurring in culture. And sometimes you just sit there and you and you wonder, what is going on in the world? You have those moments. You say, what is what is happening? What is really going on? And we have these discussions a lot. Over the last couple of weeks, I've had some coffees uh, with some young millennials. We just kind of talk about the problem of evil. It's probably the number one question I get asked uh, by folks who are either wrestling with faith or struggling with uh, kind of in a bit of a journey as to what do I believe about God. And the number one question really that I'm asked is kind of around the, the problem of evil. One of the interesting things that I find when you have these discussions is that Science advances, um, technology advances. There are so many things about our culture that are, are, that are incredible and, and, you know, to be affirmed, that are advancing and moving forward. We live here in KW, which is kind of like the IT mecca of Canada, and there's so many incredible, helpful things that are occurring. Companies are coming up with ways to serve humanity in better, better and better ways all the time. The field of medicine is advancing. There's all this advancement. But the one thing that doesn't seem to advance is the disposition of the human heart. We are the most educated generation, or educated or have the most access to information of any generation that has ever lived. And yet we, we, you know, we haven't put our guns down. Um, we, we still spend incredible amounts of money, globally speaking, on military, right? these kinds of things. But what, what is it that is going on in the world? And, and we kind of have these conversations as, as a family often, and we kind of talk about that. The modern view of the soul is that it's kind of like this tranquil lake. If you can just kind of tap into that. But the scriptural view of the soul is not that it's tranquil. It's like a raging storm. That, uh, it's like a raging storm that is at unrest and constantly clamoring and looking for rest. That's the picture that the Bible gives us of, of our souls. It wants to be satisfied, but it isn't. The modern view of humanity is that, you know, deep, deep down, we're, we are good people. It's just that it's society that corrupts us. But ironically, society is just made up of people. There's the scriptural view is that, no, deep, deep down, I'm, I'm, I'm not a good person. I'm, I'm sinful. Now, that's offensive. We say, oh, my gosh, why do we have to have this discussion about being sinful? Here's the thing. When the Bible tells us we're sinful, it's not saying you're, you're the worst, most depraved version of a human. What it's saying is you are incapable of saving yourself. You are incapable, apart from the grace of God, it's impossible for you to please God. All of us are born into this sinful condition. And so, deep, deep down, I'm not a good person. Deep, deep down, I'm operating on a me-first basis. Right? Every child needs to be taught to share. Every child needs to be taught to think about their fellow man. Think about your neighbor. Every child has to be taught this. No child needs to be taught to think about itself. It's just inherently all of us are born into that sort of the disposition where we're, we have to mature out of this idea of constantly thinking about ourselves. So this is, this is the world that we're living in. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, line by line, and we're seeing the great grace of God. And this morning, we're going to look at this line which says, 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in order to expound, what is this temptation that we're asking God to lead us out of? What is this evil we're asking God to lead us out of? I'm going to read in a minute from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking about this thing called temptation. It's going to help us get some insight on this line in the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Really, when we pray that, we're confessing that we're helpless to deliver ourselves. We're praying for deliverance. So we're immediately confessing, I can't deliver myself from this evil that's inside me, that's causing me to sin, that's causing me to, to think about myself first all the time. I can't deliver myself from that. And I also can't deliver myself from the evil one who is outside me, who is operating in the world, who is causing suffering, disease, oppression, and death, uh, globally speaking. I can't deliver myself from that either. So I'm coming to God and I'm asking for this deliverance. Now the theologians at the time of the Reformation, they searched the scriptures to find helpful ways to explain this. And so I'll read first from the Westminster Catechism and secondly from the Heidelberg, these theologians who, who said, you know, when we pray that petition and we ask for deliverance, what are we asking for? The Westminster basically instructs us in this way. It says we're praying, really, that God would either keep us from temptation altogether or that if we are, find ourselves in temptation, that he would deliver us from it. The Heidelberg Catechism reads this way. It says that by ourselves, we are too weak, even for one moment, to hold our own. And our enemies, which is our own flesh and the devil, are constantly attacking us. And so we're really praying, oh Lord, would you uphold us and make us strong by your spirit so that we, and I quote, may not go down in defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist the enemy until we finally win the complete victory. Now that's a cry for grace because the complete victory is not in this life, but we can have peace and rest in this life. It's a cry for grace. It's this cry for this deliverance. And so now I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to further expound this phrase and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, Paul is writing to Corinth, a church that is totally messy. It is a disaster. And one day when I'm not going to get to it this year, but next year when we maybe when we start working through the Corinthian church, we're going to just see, wow, the grace of God is amazing because this church was a mess. It was a total mess. And Paul is writing to them because essentially uh, they're falling into all kinds of temptation around them. And they're falling into all kinds of temptation that's in them. And essentially they're worshiping the gods of the culture. So we get this in chapter 10. I'm starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first uh, 18 verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is God's word. So Paul is writing to Corinth, and he starts by using Israel's example. They're sinning like crazy all through the wilderness. God saves them. They're, they're eating the manna, the bread that God provided every day. They're drinking from this rock, the water that God provided miraculously in the, in the desert. And Paul takes us back there to look at that. And he says, now let's look at this example and let's learn from this. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. The gospel assures us that the grace that saved us is able to deliver us from the evil that's inside us. And it has already delivered us from the evil one who is outside us. And so as we break down this passage that that Paul gives us, and I'm going to do that, I'm going to break it down. Here's what we're going to see. God's law diagnoses our problem. And God's grace delivers us from our problem. God's law exposes the root of our temptation. And then God's grace offers the remedy for our Temptation. So first, let's look at the first thing. How does God's law expose the root of temptation? Well, the root of temptation is this restless soul. This restless soul that's prone to kind of wander into idolatry. And so that's why he gives us the children of Israel as an example. In verse 2, he uses this phrase. He says, they were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? Well, you'll recall that God divided the Red Sea miraculously. The children of Israel walk through the Red Sea on dry land, and and the Apostle Paul refers to that as baptism. So God saves them in grace, and once they're saved in grace, then God gives gives them the law as a means of enjoying their freedom. But of course, they couldn't keep the law. They never kept the law. You and I can't keep God's law as it's meant to be kept perfectly. And so we need someone to keep God's law for us, who God has provided in Jesus Christ. So you get this picture of being, of being baptized into Christ. This is important because if we, if we forget the grace and the goodness of what we've been forgiven from, then what we're going to end up doing is we're going to try and apply the externals of God's law without internalizing the goodness of God's grace. And if we bypass the goodness of God's grace and we bypass everything that Christ has done for us and we forget that he lived the perfect life we could never live. And we just kind of bypass all that. We say, yeah, yeah, we get the gospel. We hear it every single Sunday. We hear how Christ, yeah, we get it, we get it, we get it. 
Now I just gotta apply this, I just gotta apply this law. We're gonna be forgetting that we've, we're gonna be forgetting the, the goodness of the grace that we've received and we're gonna be trying to apply the externals on an unchanged heart. We're gonna be trying to put God's law on an unchanged heart which is gonna result in great frustration because spiritual maturity, this overcoming of temptation, it flows from marveling at Christ. That's counterintuitive. We would think, well, t- this morning's sermon is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Therefore, give us five or six really helpful ways to overcome temptation. And then I'm going to end up giving you the, all these externals. Well, if you're being tempted in this way, then all you got to do is put these barriers and these parameters around. These are all external things on an unchanged heart. We haven't solved the problem. I can't put out the fire of temptation by pouring the gasoline of the law on the blazing fire in my heart. I need to rest in God's grace and remember Christ's forgiveness so that my heart is reoriented, so that I'm actually desiring now God's law. And so that's why uh, Paul, Paul doesn't just start by saying, Dear Corinth, I hear your sexual ethic is crazy. Guys, stop it. Here's how, you know. <laughs> what? No, he, Paul doesn't do that. He goes right back to, he goes all the way back to like this great saving grace. Because the Christian faith is counterintuitive. It, it, we mature by marveling. And so if we don't uh, marvel, then we end up just kind of, in a sense, in our hearts, it's kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Okay, maybe this configuration will work. It's going down. I mean, it's just going down. And so I, I, I need to rest and, oh God, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Having this kind of honest moment of confession towards the Lord about... about uh, the things in my heart that are drawing me to live the me first kind of a life, I'll decide. See, Israel's problem was, we'll decide what to worship. We'll decide what's true. We'll decide how to worship God. You know, we think that making a golden calf is a great way to worship God, so we're going to worship this way. We don't really care what God's up to. This is kind of how we want to worship him. So Israel's problem was their hearts were always kind of constantly kind of wandering in this place. So my encouragement to all of you in particular who have children would be not just sitting around the table and giving the children the law of God, but giving the children a reason to marvel at the grace of God so that their hearts will increasingly want the law of God. And I'm saying this from a position of having failed miserably at this. Susan and I have conversations with our kids all the time about how in our, in our younger years, we were very committed to the behavior being correct. And, uh, you know, we have adult children, too, who we've had to say, look, please forgive us, because our idea was, hey, if we just put all the checks and balances and say these are what the rules are, um, you know, this is the Christian ethic, you know, you're going to actually want to do that. Which, of course, that doesn't produce anything. You know, the law, the Romans 5, says it's like, just put, on, put up the sign that says don't walk on the grass, and guess what everybody wants to do? I mean, the law inflames. And so we want to give our children a reason to marvel at the Christ of the faith, not just the Christian ethic of, of, of our faith. And so this is why Paul goes all the way back there with Corinth. He goes all the way back, all the way back to grace. Uh, in verse 4, Paul interprets the Old Testament uh, through Christ because he says, he talks about the spiritual drink and the rock, and he says the rock was Christ. Now, the story in the Old Testament, for those of you who are newer to the scriptures, God, the children of Israel are going to, they're going to die in the desert if they don't have anything to drink, and God tells Moses to hit the rock, and Moses hits this rock, 
or sorry, speak to the rock. Moses speaks to the rock, and water comes out of the rock, and everybody uh, drinks out of this gushing water that miraculously comes. God saves children through, through this miraculous water coming from a rock. And Paul looks at that, that account, and Paul says that rock was Christ. He's, he's using a lens of understanding the Old Testament says, look at this great grace. And the reason why uh, Paul does that and the reason why it's important is because before Paul gets to the imperative, he's going back to the indicative. The imperatives are, do this. The indicatives are, Christ did this. So all of Paul's letters talk about, you know, the things we're supposed to do and the things that Christ did. And everything we do flows from marveling at what was done. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How are you going to do that? By trying harder? I mean, how are you really, how do you, how do you make your heart want something else? The reason you did it in the first place is that, that program is running. And you can't just put up external, I mean, you can't, by putting up external barriers, that's very helpful for your neighbor, right? If your temptation is to steal your neighbor's Maserati, and you, I mean, I'm just, I'm projecting, okay? But if, you're, if, you're, if your temptation is to steal your neighbor's fast car, um, then by putting up external barriers, by just telling yourself, no, no, I will not steal the Maserati, that's actually very helpful for our neighbor, right? Society functions well, even if we don't want to do the right thing, by just putting up parameters and barriers that says, I won't steal that, I won't sleep with them, you know, I won't oppress this person, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to cheat, I'm not, I mean, society functions well with the, with the external uh, governances of God's laws, but God's not interested in that. What, really what he's after is a heart that gets melted by grace so that we actually desire something different, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and God's saving grace that causes us to desire his law, which is why David said, oh, how I love your law. Really, David? I mean, you saw a woman because you were on your roof and she was naked and she was bathing and you wanted her, but she was married. So then you sent her husband out to war and you got him killed and you made sure he was killed and, uh, because you slept with his wife and you got her pregnant and you had to try to convince you know, him that it was his baby, but it was your baby, but it, that didn't work. So then you killed him. You love God's law? You see, the reason why David came to the part where he was coming to the point where he's saying, oh, how I love God's law, was because he had an understanding of God's radical and unbelievable, undeserved grace. And it was his understanding of grace that made him say, oh, how I love your law. I know how I desire your law. And this is um, the trajectory of rescuing grace is this kind of reforming kind of trajectory. And so sometimes, you know, people will say... Um, when you're talking about overcoming temptation and changing behavior patterns, and I'm, I keep on wanting to do this, but I want to do that, they'll say, don't throw scriptures at me, preacher. Just tell me what to do. I don't need, you know, I don't need you to tell me about, don't, I don't want to hear blah, blah, blah about God's grace and God's gospel. I just, need to, I just need to be told what to do. No, you don't. Precisely what you and I need, precisely what we need, is God's gospel and God's grace so that our hearts actually melt as because we see our guilt and we see our grace and it propels this desire for this life of gratitude. You know, Moses was leading the Exodus, which we know, which is why Paul started there, because Christ is leading a new Exodus. See, Moses was leading the children out of the Exodus of Egypt. Christ is leading you and I out of the Exodus of sin and death. He's leading us in an Exodus from the evil one. He's leading us in an exodus of the evil that's in our own hearts. 
This is, this is the exodus that Christ is leading us from. His saving grace. He's, his exodus is able to deliver us from the evil that's inside us, and he has already delivered us from the evil one who is outside us. So in verse 5, Paul says, well, you know, they were, they were, the children of Israel were overthrown in the wilderness uh, because of this great temptation. And the reason they were overthrown is because God's law is able to direct us but God's law isn't able to empower us. That's not the description of the law. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of what Christ has done. That's why we gather each week and we marvel and we rest and we worship and we remember um, week in and week out that when we walk out those doors, there's not things you're supposed to be up to so that God goes, okay, now I'm pleased with you. Now I'm satisfied with you. Rather, you and I wake up. Even though we don't deserve it, we wake up in this condition of being uh, accepted and loved by God because of what Christ did. It's only in revisiting that that we say, we're going to say, oh, how I love your law. Oh, God, lead me out of temptation. Oh, God, would you deliver me from evil? Would you change this heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that I desire your law? And so then in verse 8, Paul drops this big sex bomb, right? It seems out of place at, at first. When you read the whole letter, it makes more sense. But he says, in the middle, he's talking about, and God saved Israel, da-da-da-da-da. And, and, and uh, they ate the same spiritual bread, and they drank the same spiritual drink. Oh, and by the way, flee sexual immorality. I went, what? Is this just out of left field? What's he doing? He, what, what Paul's doing for Corinth at the time is he's saying, guys, stop running God's laws through your cultural filter. Part of the reason why you're so tempted, part of the reason why you're struggling with what you're struggling with, and with Corinth, it was, it was, uh, they were a highly sexualized culture. And uh, even today, much like our uh, culture here in KW, highly sexualized, right? Over, over, uh, over stimulation in terms of sex everywhere, right? Very much like our culture today. So Paul is saying to Corinth, guys, stop running, you know, all of God's laws and the ways you're living your life through the filter of the culture. This, this temptation is taking you to a place that isn't good. It's taking you to a place that's... Um, it's going to be destructive. This is what, why Paul does it. He doesn't just randomly throw it out, throw it out there. He, he's really intentionally saying it because there's two historical errors that the church has made. Uh, the first error would be that they under-contextualize to the culture, and the second error is they over-contextualize to the culture. By under-contextualizing, here's the error the church made. Oh my gosh, the world is bad, and only we're good, and they're like a big dirty mud puddle, and we're all wearing our white robes of righteousness, so the best way to not get muddy is to just separate yourself from the world. So we're, not, we're only going to have Christian friends, we're going to go to Christian schools, we're going to do business with Christian people, and we're going to create these little Christian ghettos, and we're going to live inside the Christian ghettos, and everything's going to be great, and we're going to hold our hands, we're going to sing Kumbaya until Jesus comes back. That was, that's been the one historical error that the church has made. Right? We can fall into those errors today in, in various different ways. Right? The idea that, you know, we got to just withdraw from the culture. But the other error is in the other ditch, right? Like Luther said, we're kind of like these drunken peasants that fall off our horse into one ditch and then we get up and then we stubble, you know, topple over to the ditch on the other side. And the other ditch is the church has over-contextualized the culture. And they've said, well, we're just going to run you know, the Bible through the filter of the culture. We're going to update this. This is very old. It probably needs updating. So we're going to review all of our ethics through the lens of the transient culture. And so um, we're going to talk about gospel because that sounds nice. We're going to use the word grace a lot and forgiveness a lot because that sounds fantastic. But we're not going to talk about sin because that offends people. We're not going to talk about God's judgment 
uh, because that's totally offensive. We're certainly not going to talk about hell, that we're spiritual beings that are going to live, you know, in this sh after this short little physical life, that there's an eternity that we should consider. We're not going to talk about that because that's crazy. So we're going to over-contextualize to the culture. And what we're going to do is we're going to get up here and we're going to do these really dynamic, encouraging, baptized TED Talks that are just so exciting that you just kind of come in and you go, yeah, and, and you know, maybe Jesus gets mentioned, maybe not, maybe gets an honorable mention, but everybody's very happy with this. And the North Americans go, let's do it. I wanted to be successful anyways, and now you're telling me to be successful and you're throwing scriptures in? This is amazing. I can't think of anything better than this. Oh, this is totally the gospel. This is totally what the church should do. Well, Over-contextualized on the other side. And so what Corinth did was they were over-contextualizing. They were saying yes to Jesus, yes to grace, and then they were looking at that Corinthian, in this particular scenario, a sexual ethic, and going, well, let's just kind of adopt that. I mean, let's just do this. And Paul goes, well, wait a minute, you're forgetting. You're forgetting that God has saved you in this great grace. He's actually given you his law for, to flourish. And so we don't want to fall into any of those errors, and we want to encourage our children, again, for those of you who have, have parents, not, not to live lives of isolation, um, we don't isolate our children, we insulate them, if I was to use that terminology. We teach them the goodness of God's grace and his, how his laws help them to flourish so that our kids grow up with a particular way of viewing the world and having conversations that are, that are critical and intelligent uh, and able to say, well, I know why I believe what I believe. And if I was to use Corinthians as an example, because Paul was kind of challenging them on their sexual ethic, for us it would be raising children in a culture where uh, the sexual ethic is fluid. It's always changing. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a conversation. Sexual ethics is a, con is a shifting conversation. So how do we raise children that love their neighbor, are very gracious to people who don't share, you know, our Christian ethic at all, but yet we are gracious to them, we love them, but yet we maintain our convictions? How do we do that? Well, you don't do it by just pouring the law on it. You don't do it by getting the children around the table and saying, hey, God's word says... You marry a Christian, end of conversation. That's right there in Corinthians. I can turn you to that scripture. And also, you don't have sex until you're married, end of conversation, because without the covenant commitment of a life to a person, then you're using them for your own sexual benefit, because after all, you haven't committed to them, spirit, soul, and body, but you're taking something from them in sex, so don't do that. I'll turn to that scripture, bam. We're just going to pour the gasoline of the law on the heart that's inflamed and saying, what? So that's why Paul doesn't just go there. Paul goes all the way back to, to grace. And he says, marvel at this. Marvel at what God has done. And let the beauty of this transform and, and cause for your heart to rest. So that the rescuing grace has this reforming trajectory. Because having been amazed by grace, we will want to bow our knee to the king of grace. How do you and I say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, other than bowing our knee to the king of grace? And what's going to make us want to bow our knee? Marveling at the grace, which is why Paul starts there. He starts with that indicative before he gets to the imperative. And then in verse uh, 12, Paul says, let him who thinks he stand, lest he fall. And he just invites us into this humility. Again, so that we don't as we're having conversations with one another and we're sharing our struggles with one another and as this church grows year after year and you've got folks in here and say, boy, I'm, I'm struggling with this or my family is going through this dilemma or, or I've really screwed up and boy, I did this thing that I really regret, that we don't have a culture of comparison here, but a culture of compassion. 
because we recognize, listen, I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm declared righteous even though I don't deserve that. So I can now relate to you as you're kind of confessing this. As opposed to a culture of comparison that says, wow, you sinned like that? Man, that is really sinny sin. I mean, I sin, but my sin is basically just having bad attitudes every once in a while. I have a bad attitude. The Lord has to deal with my attitude. That's how I sin. You know, if we create a culture where, like, the worst sin in this church is that somebody had a bad attitude. You know, it's like, once I stole a paperclip from the office for my personal use, I'd be like, you're just shutting the door for honest confession and conversation. Because everybody else is like, oh, okay, that's this, this is the level of honesty and confession and that are, okay, well, we'll just play around up there then if that's what's going on. You know, and so Paul says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So that there's this, this, this humility that we have. And it's great to live our life on our knees because it's very difficult to look down on other people when we're down there. And then he turns in verse 13 and he says, hey, listen, temptation is common to all men. And James 1.14 talks about that. It says, you know, each of us are led away in temptation according to our own desires, right? And the word in Greek is way stronger because it says led away, but the word in Greek is actually dragged. It's a great image, right? You're dragged into temptation. It's a lure. For those of you who are fishermen, I don't know how many fishermen or fisherwomen we have in here, but uh, lures work because they're not obvious. You see, I'm tempted a lot to live a me-first life in various ways, think of myself above my wife, above my kids, not cherish Susan because I am thinking a particular way or I'm in a particular funk or I'm, my behavior is in a particular direction. And... When Susie and I sit down and have those conversations where she's like, hey, babe, you know, I love you, but I don't like you right now. You know how everybody who's married have those convos? Totally love you, do not like you whatsoever. If you're married, you understand what I'm saying. Now, when we have those conversations, the, what I, you know, the, the result of my temptation is totally obvious. But it's, it's the reason that I'm doing it that's not obvious. I mean, if it was obvious, I'd stop myself mid... I would stop myself. You know, and as the Lord is doing a work in my heart and in my marriage, because all of us, you know, spoiler alert, we all have marriage problems. I don't know if you knew this, but I, I, I should probably just let you know. They're, they're different, but we all have them, right? Uh, and so in all of our marriages or in all of your relating, for those of you who aren't married and you've got friends and you have strained friendships and you have these moments where tensions are high either with your friends or with your family or with your parents, the reason why you're, you're living those me-first moments are not obvious. That's why you get dragged away. That's why James says each of us are enticed in different, in, in, in different ways and by different things. But God's great grace is the remedy for temptation. So we've been talking about how God's law um, exposes it. But here's how God's grace is the remedy for it. See, God's grace reorients our soul to actually want what God wants. A Christian faith isn't, um, you know, this idea that the material world is bad and only the spiritual things are good. And so if you could somehow not care about material stuff and only spiritual things, then you're a great Christian. That is not Christian faith. That is like Gnosticism. So the Christian faith is not that we forsake all these material things so that we're not tempted. It's that we don't make any of the material things ultimate things. The dilemma of our heart, though, is that we're always inclined to do that. Whether it's a person that we're making an ultimate, a relationship we're making ultimate, a romance we're making ultimate, a ch our children we're making ultimate, our jobs, our careers, there's a thousand things we can make ultimate. But God's grace, which is what Paul is appealing to, 
It actually reorients our hearts so that we will actually flee this idolatry. I was, uh, verse 14, he says, flee from idolatry. Well, you don't flee things that you want. That's the last thing you just don't. So Paul is actually asking us to do something counterintuitive. He's like, flee your idols, right? But you don't flee idols. You want idols. So you, we don't want to bow down to them. So again, Paul is, is, is appealing to this great grace. And there was a theologian in the 1500s named John Calvin who famously said, our hearts are like idol-making factories. And so our disposition is to always go there, which is why the Lord's Prayer gives us this daily invitation to flee our idols. This daily invitation to say, oh God, lead me not into temptation, but would you deliver me from evil? Thank you that you've delivered me from the evil one because of the grace of Christ. But oh God, would you deliver me from this evil that's, that clings to my heart, that causes me to build a wall around my heart that says comfort and me first. Would you deliver me from that? And this is the great uh, work of the Spirit. In verse 15, Paul goes on and he says, Hey, judge for yourselves, you're critical thinkers. He says, I'm, I'm appealing as to reasonable people. Judge for yourself if what I'm saying makes sense. And then what does he do in the next few verses? He goes to the bread and the cup. Right? He doesn't say, hey, judge for yourself if what I'm saying makes sense. Right? If you've, hey, Corinth, if, if you've got all these sexual hang-ups, then hide yourself in a tower and lock yourself away until the desire goes. He doesn't give all these ridiculous externals. He goes, you're a critical thinker. Think of what I'm saying makes sense. What does he do? Grace. Think of what I'm saying makes sense. Bread and the cup. He goes right back to what Christ did. He goes, Corinth, your problem is that you don't marvel enough. KW Redeemer, our problem is that we don't marvel enough. My problem is that I don't marvel enough. And, by, and when I say marvel enough, I mean just coming into that place of daily rest. Oh God, would you deliver me? Deliver me from myself. Would you deliver me? And being invited back into that daily rest. So God's grace is the only, as the absolutely only remedy for sin. And the good news is this, and I close with this. The good news in verse 16 and 17 is that we are united with Christ. And his work is actual it's not pending. So the good news as I close this sermon is that right here and right now, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you because he's given ordinary means to do that work. First, the preaching of Christ as Christ fills your ears. And in a minute, we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to eat and drink. And it, the great thing about eating and drinking is our mouths are busy, so they're shut. And it's a great gift of God to shut our mouths, isn't it? I know for me it is anyways. And so as our mouths are shut and we are receiving the grace of Christ in the ordinary bread and the ordinary, in the ordinary cup, he has promised by the power of his spirit to continue to do his gracious work. The work of the spirit in you is actual. It's gradual, but it's actual. And so the gospel assures us that the grace that saved us is able to deliver us from the evil inside us and has already delivered us from the evil one who is outside us. Let's pray.